If you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 1. That's where we're going to be. I want to show you a picture as we begin this morning. We went to New York City a little while back, I think is where I found this particular slide. Walking down the road past this dumpster stuck back in this parking garage, and that's what I saw painted on the side of the dumpster. All right, God, what now? And I remember I was just struck by the message of that, by the question that that presented. And I, find, I found myself thinking about the person who actually put that on the dumpster, what they must have been going through, what they must have been experiencing, just wondering about that kind of heart cry. It's very similar to what we read in the Psalms this summer, where people would come to God with these kinds of things. And just thinking about what would be going on in his life and... As we come into our passage today, I want us to begin by thinking about all that's going on in our world. We live in a very uncertain world where there's a lot of things that are happening that can be frightening for us, give us a sense of this lack of security. I mean, think about war. We hear about war taking place in all these places, and are we going to get involved, and how far are we from these, some of these wars actually getting on our soil? For instance, like with ISIS, we've been learning about that, this terrorist war, and we know it's happening over there, but we also know it's starting to get really close to us as well, and that creates this uncertainty in our world, and things like disease Recently, it's Ebola, right? So you got to find out what is the disease? How do we fight against it? Is it going to make it to us? Let's quarantine people. But many health concerns could be put into that category of this world in which we live. When we think about destructive weather, it seems like almost every day that I read something in the paper that just seems out of control in the world in which you live. Here, we're fighting drought. We're trying to figure out how to conserve water. In other places, they've got too much water and there's flooding. And so you've got monsoons and hurricanes and just the heavy um, rains that would fall and then these flash floods and they just wash houses away. People die. And it's just little, little these little bites that we see on the news, just quick flashes. 20 seconds of what's happening here, 30 seconds of what's happening here, 15 seconds of what's happening here, and then on to the next thing. And we can seem overwhelmed with all of this. And so we've got a lot of things that happen in our world that can create a little bit of uncertainty for us and create difficulty, pain, the struggle that we find ourselves up against. But not only that, we can also live foolishly. We can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and we see where that first sin entered the world. God had created an incredible garden where Adam and Eve could live. All goodness was there for them. And even with that, this relationship with God where all was good, this relationship with one another where all was good, their heart could still be enticed and move away from the Lord. That's foolish. But yet they did that. And we also are pounded by similar temptations. Even in the Bible it says, we know his schemes. He's out there seeking whom he may devour. And our hearts can be led away and we can be enticed and we can live foolishly. We have a lot of things that happen in our lives. The announcement earlier about the house of prayer. Well, right after the house of prayer, elders get together 
And one time a, week, a month we meet together, and one time a month we, leave, we meet with our separate campuses. Every Sunday morning we get together before our worship services and we spend time in prayer. And even though there's many of you who have just started coming to Fullerton, I haven't really met you, I still hear some of your stories because we gather together and we pray and we know what's going on in our body as well. We have a lot of struggles that we're up against, psychological issues that we battle, peer pressure. We're not talking about just teenagers or children, adults, and the battles with trying to fit in and somehow keeping up with the Joneses, whatever it looks like out there for us to be like everybody else. And we can make foolish decisions in the midst of all of that. Lawsuits, legal issues, we're stuck in the system, fighting that system. Marriages that are either hanging by a thread or dissolving, and we plead with the Lord on behalf of our congregations. Parent-teen conflicts, where something's happening inside the teen and something's happening inside the parent, and it can be a collision between those two. Family members walking away from the faith. The battles rage. It doesn't matter if you're a child, teenager, adult. We all have those battles that we're all up against, and we might end up with the question, all right, God, what now? It only takes six chapters into the Bible, and God looks down and sees only evil continually. There's a battle in this world, and we say, all right, God, what now? We can be up against a lot, but there is hope. And when you think about not just what's going on in our world today and not just what's going on in your world today, but multiply that by all these years from the time of being in the garden where this world became a mess and foolish decisions have been made day after day, month after month, year after year, through all of this time, through all the Old Testament and throughout all these pages, you can read about all these things that happen while God is advancing his plan. While he's slowly moving it forward, God has been doing a work. But something I tell my Old Testament students at Biola all the time is, God is in no hurry to accomplish his purposes. And so we wait, and there's been a lot of waiting. God has always had a plan. He's been unfolding that through the ages. And now, to use the words of the Apostle Paul, we live in the fullness of time. In other words, we live at a point in history where we can look back and say, aha. Now, we're still looking forward, too, because Jesus is going to come back. He's going to fully establish his rule and reign on this earth. But we can also look back and say, we can see what God has been doing. It becomes clearer and clearer to us. And ultimately, what God has been doing throughout all time, what we can look back and see is the gospel. And that's where Mark is going to take us. It's to the gospel. This is what all these tragedies that happen around the world, ultimately what people need is the gospel. All the struggles that are in our lives represented in this room this morning and throughout this entire city, this entire county, this entire state, we could continue to take it out, ultimately is the gospel. And as we go through Mark, that's what we're going to see week after week after week. We're going to see the person of Jesus because the gospel is not just five steps to find this new life. The gospel is a person. It's Jesus. So let me read the first 13 verses of Mark 1. That's where we're going to spend our time today, and then I'll pray, and then we'll work our way through these verses. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. 
the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Let's pray. Lord, we are here this morning in hope, in faith, with anticipation. And we read these verses and we believe that your word is alive and powerful and that you indeed have the words of life. And so Lord, we pray this morning that you would in fact make your words alive and powerful and that you would work these truths into our hearts, that you would open our hearts to receive you, to receive Jesus, to receive the gospel, to receive good news. Lord, in whatever ways our hearts have run after other gods, where we've been enticed away from your goodness, would you return us today? And would you empower us even for the week ahead? And so we want to give this time to you for your honor and your glory and for our good. And so we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to this particular book, this is a gospel. And there are four gospels. Again, I don't know how much you know, you know about what's going on in the Bible. Always wanted to make sure you, you understand the way the Bible is put together. There's four Gospels. Three of them are very similar. We're going to be looking at one of the ones that's similar. Mark is very similar to Matthew and Luke. And so there's a technical word we use. We call them the synoptic Gospels. In other words, we, you can see them together. You can look at them together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They, they follow up the flow of thought beginning from Jesus' beginning to the very death and the resurrection um, at the end. And they, they oftentimes give a different perspective on things. So you get to see an event and you can see it from how Matthew wants to portray it. Mark and Luke, it's all the same event. They sometimes put things together differently. We're going to be studying the book of Mark. And what I would encourage you to do is maybe while we're going through this study for the next year or whatever that you might want to also spend some time in some of the other Gospels. You might want to spend some time reading Matthew or Luke or John. I myself have been reading through John. 
Uh, John is not one of the ones that is a synoptic gospel where you see them together. Very different, focuses more towards the end of Jesus' life and a lot of his teachings. But I've been reading through that book as I've also been working my way through Mark. So I want to encourage you to do that. But when we come to Mark's gospel, um, it's, it's shorter in some ways than the other gospels. And people have referred to it as being you know, a brief gospel. It just, just jumps in and out of the stories. I mean, just like in the first 13 verses, I mean, bam, boom, boom, boom. But actually, Mark will tarry in some of these stories. He uses a lot of colorful language. He'll linger. He makes it very powerful in the way he tells the story. And we see the title of this series is The King and the Cross. If I were to entitle this series, I, for this particular gospel, I would entitle it Jesus in Your Face. Because this is what that gospel does. It's not just brief, it's colorful, it's powerful. And, and Mark doesn't hold back. He just says it just like it is. And then he goes to the next thing and says it just like it is. And you're constantly confronted with Jesus. You don't walk away from Mark going, well, let me think about it. I'm not real certain. I mean, he's, he's going to put it right here. You're going to be on yes or you're going to be a no. It's, Mar it's Jesus in your face. I mean, it's just so strong what he says. And I think we're going to have a great time with this. This gospel is attributed to Mark. And if you think about early church history in the book of Acts, and you think about the first missionary journeys, Paul and Mark, Barnabas, they're going out to visit all these churches and helping them establish elders and deacons. Well, on that first missionary journey, for whatever reason, Mark goes back home. He quits. Um, apparently, Paul didn't like a quitter. And so it comes up to the second. He doesn't want to take Mark. I mean, Mark was a quitter. I don't want any quitters on my team. Now, eventually, in the future, Paul and Mark worked out whatever differences they have. And, and he, Paul actually refers to Mark as being very important to his ministry. But they, they went their ways, and now we have two teams of missionaries. And oftentimes, God works that way, doesn't he? Instead of having one team, now we have two teams. And they work it out. But Mark spent a lot of his time with Peter. He was a disciple of Peter. If you look at the end of Peter's first epistle, he refers to Mark as my son. And this would be a, a way of speaking of someone that you had led to the faith and nurtured and discipled. Peter looks at Mark as one he brought to Jesus and has discipled him along. And so Mark spent a lot of time with Peter. And in many ways, this gospel could be called the gospel according to Peter. Because what we're going to get here is actually Peter's words. Mark, as the student, traveling with Peter, watching, listening, now he's going to record all these words. Listen to what this one historian said. He said this, When Peter had publicly preached the word at Rome and by the Spirit had proclaimed the gospel, those present, who were many, exhorted Mark, as one who followed him for a long time and remembered what had been spoken to make a record of what was said. And Mark did this and distributed the Gospels among those who asked him. That's a historian who writes about a little bit of the background for this particular Gospel. Mark's listening to Peter, hears his sermons. Those around said, Mark, you ought to write something. Mark writes something. So in many ways, this could be the Gospel of Peter. Now, our series title is The King and the Cross, and there are two distinct sections to this book we can see. 
Part one is chapters one through eight. That's why we completed our reading in chapters one through eight last week. And then we'll preach through this section. Then coming up in the future, we'll read through also chapters nine through 16. So it was a very nice ending point. Now, what's interesting about these two sections is they have a similar beginning and a similar ending. They both begin with a voice from heaven. So in, in our passage today, in verse 11 of chapter one, we hear this voice from heaven. You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Well, when you get to the beginning of the second part, nine through 16, we have the same thing, a voice from heaven. In chapter nine, verse seven, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And so we'll pick that up later on. What's also interesting is they both end very similarly. Both of them end picking up from chapter one, verse one. Look what it says in chapter one, verse one. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. So who is this Jesus? He's the Christ, he's the son of God. In this first section, it's going to end with Jesus saying, hey, who do people say that I am? And they give him various, you know, you're Elijah, you're the one that's gonna come. Well, who do you say that I am? And, P and Peter says, you are the Christ the son of the living God. Well, that's the way this first section is going to end. Jesus is, is definitely the one who has come. Well, then we get into part two and we slowly work our way to Jerusalem where the king is not going to be put on a throne. The king is actually going to be put on a cross and he's going to die. And that also ends picking up with chapter one, verse one, with the de declaration of the centurion, truly this man was the son of God in chapter 15, in verse 39. And so this is about Jesus. And we're gonna learn about Jesus in the days ahead. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. So let's move into this gospel right now. Chapter one, verse one is where in the bulletin you have three points that we wanna move our way through this morning. The first one is the introduction to this gospel, chapter one, verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is the topic sentence for the book. So if you ever had to read a chapter, paragraphs, and find the topic sentence and underline it and turn it in for your homework, you want to underline chapter one, verse one, because that is the topic sentence for the book. This is a gospel about Jesus, who he is, what he did, what he came to accomplish, the good news of God that we've been talking about throughout all time. We're now in this fullness of time. We can see this good news of God is ultimately the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what Edward says in his commentary. He says, for Mark, the gospel refers to the fulfillment of God's reign and salvation in the fullness of time. In the appearance of Jesus in Galilee, a new age has dawned that requires repentance and faith. In Mark's understanding, therefore, the gospel is more than a set of truths or even a set of beliefs. It is a person. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. The kingdom that God inaugurated is bodily present in Jesus of Nazareth. This is not some kind of catechism. There are 10 points you need to know. You need to know a person. The person is Jesus, and we need to, to see the testimony of his life, and that's what Mark wants to set before us. For Mark, it all comes down to Jesus, and for us, it must all come down to Jesus as well. All right, God, what now? And then God answers, and he says, Jesus. 
That's God's answer. That's what he sets out there. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the year ahead as we look at Jesus. Jesus is what we all need. It is the answer to the what now question, regardless of what we're up against. Now, point number two, the, this gospel is anticipated by prophets in the Old Testament. So we get the verse two and it says, as it is written in Isaiah, the prophet. So Mark's gonna dive right into the Old Testament. So we're gonna talk about Jesus. So let's go back here. In the Old Testament, there have been these prophecies and there are so many. Mark's not gonna spend a lot of time saying, well, let's look at a smattering of 15 different prophecies and show you how they connect with Christ. He's simply gonna go right here to what he refers to as Isaiah, the prophet, um, but these prophecies have been coming all along. Go all the way back to Genesis 3.15. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. God is going to be the victor in the end. Sin will be defeated. Satan will be defeated. Death will be defeated. That's been the promise all the way along. Mark's going to reach back now in Isaiah. And actually what he does, it's a compilation of two different prophecies. We've got one from Malachi and one from Isaiah. And Mark is going to pull these two together. He's going to attribute it to Isaiah because that's the lengthy prophecy that he uses. But he's also using Malachi. In Malachi chapter 3, um, we see where it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, here we are at the end of the Old Testament in Malachi. And so God has brought them out of Egypt. He met them at Mount Sinai. He gave them the law. They became his people. They were followers of him. They were in covenant relation with him and they left him. And he in his mercy called them back and they again followed him and then they left him. He in his mercy called them back. Then he was merciful and gracious to them, continued to walk with him. And then they left him and he called them back. I mean, that's the story of the Old Testament. It's been back and forth and back and forth. And we get to the end of the Old Testament and they rebuild the temple, but the glory doesn't come down on the temple like it did in the tabernacle at the end of Exodus, like it did when the temple was built in Kings. The glory doesn't come down and there's this anticipation of the glory. And everyone begins to look forward. And so Malachi even says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That glory will come down. It's going to happen. There's a day coming out there. And I'm going to send my messenger. He's going to prepare the way. But then also, we have in later on in Malachi, it says in chapter 4, verse 5, I will send Elijah the prophet. Now, that's why when John the Baptist comes on the scene, they go, are you Elijah? Are you the Christ? And so then later on with Jesus, when he comes on the scene, they say, are you Elijah? You see, there's this anticipation. You understand that from the Old Testament? There's this anticipation about this one who's coming. But Mark also quotes from Isaiah 40, verse 3. A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He's going to pull these together. He wants to tell us the story of Jesus. And he's going to begin with this prophecy these two that he's pulled together. You see, what Mark wants us to understand is God is not moving from plan A to plan B to plan C. God is not saying, well, you know, we tried the temple thing and sacrifices and law and covenant didn't work. So we're going to go to plan B now. And if that doesn't work, we'll go to plan C. No, God has been working and moving all along. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, verse 2, 
as it is written. Mark wants to say, listen, I want to show you what God's been doing all along. I'm going to make that clear to you. I'm going to open it up to you so you can see. God has been moving and Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of this work. Remember we were going through the, the book of Hebrews. Uh, for those of you who are here during that series, you get to chapter 11 and it says that they never received the promises. They welcomed them. They greeted them from afar. Those promises are still out there as we look at Hebrews 11 and talk about all those Old Testament saints. They died without receiving. It says they acknowledged that they were aliens, that there was something else out there that they never quite reached. Well, now we're in the fullness of times and we can see the unfolding of that plan. Oh, we still wait too. We've got another day out there, but we are moving toward that and Mark wants to make it clear. And so we see that the gospel is fulfilled in Jesus in the New Testament is our third point. And firstly, we see that, that John arrives on the scene. Now notice how clear it is here in the text. Verse two, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I'm gonna send my messenger, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Verse four, John appeared. And what was John doing? He was baptizing, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. All the country of Judea, all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. There's this great awakening that's happening. I mean, people are anticipating when John comes, they're asking, are you the one? When Jesus comes, are you the one? They are looking for this day out there. And so something's happening with John the Baptist and they're all going out there to be baptized. Verse six, now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. I mean, this was a weird dude out in the wilderness. This was nothing ordinary. It's just, it's remarkable that all is used twice. They were all going out there. Something was happening out there with this dude, John the Baptist, who dressed funny and ate weird stuff, but yet somehow what he was proclaiming was important and he was baptizing. And we aren't certain exactly what his baptism is. It's, it's not as if John says, behold, it says in the book of Deuteronomy, verse 23, I mean, chapter 23, verses 12 through 17, that we should all go out to the wilderness, the desert, and be baptized and confess our sins. It's not there, but something was happening. John is this forerunner, and he was calling people to what is very clear, according to Mark, is this baptism of repentance. It is for the forgiveness of sins. And as they were being baptized, they were confessing their sins. There is a recognition of a heart turned away from the Lord. And as they engage in this baptism, there's a turning back. And many people would embed this baptism in passages like Exodus 19, verse 10. In Exodus 19, God has called the nation out of Egypt. They are at Mount Sinai. God has said, I am your God. You will be my people. The people then say to Moses, tell the Lord all that the Lord says we will do. And so they're going to enter into this covenant relationship. And so before that covenant is actually entered into, God says to Moses, tell the people to go away and cleanse themselves. Wash their garments. And so they go away and they cleanse themselves. They wash their garments and then they come to receive the Lord. And people say, that's the kind of context that's going on here. 
They're coming out to John for this cleansing so that they can receive the Lord. Ultimately, what they're saying with this baptism is you are our God. There's a reaffirmation of the covenant that seems to be taking place here. They are preparing for the glory of the Lord to come down, Malachi chapter 3. They are preparing the way Isaiah chapter 40, for God to restore his kingdom. When the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Lord, you are our God. Now, this is what Josephus said. And we have a slide up here that shows that. John exhorted the Jews to lead righteous lives, to practice justice toward their fellows and piety towards God, and so doing to join in baptism. Ultimately, what we see there is love God, love your neighbor. What did Jesus say that was? The fulfillment of the law. All the law of the Old Testament can hang on these two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's what John was calling people as well, to practice justice or love towards their fellows and piety or love towards God. And by proclaiming this in baptism, John was calling for a heart change, moving away from this and moving toward the Lord. In Luke chapter 3, you can see what he was calling people to, the fruit of repentance. Don't just play religious games. The fruit of repentance is what he longed to see, hearts that were prepared. But Mark's focus is not just on John. It's on the one who is coming. What did John say in verse 7 and 8? So we've got in verse 2 and 3, Prophecy, as it is written. Then verse four, John appeared. John appears, he's doing his thing, but how does he end? And he preached saying, verse seven, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the, the, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I've baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so John gives this image a, a servant would stoop down to loosen someone's sandals. And John says, this one is so mighty that I can't even take the role of a servant with him. It's Jesus, it's the servant, and it's me. I'm way down here. I can't even stoop down. I'm not worthy to be a servant to this one who's coming. I'm just baptizing you with water. The water's right here. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And so... As it is written, one is coming, John appeared. After me comes one who is mightier than I. And then in verse 9, in those days, Jesus came. You see, in these, in these few verses, John is just trying to make it as, I mean, Mark is trying to make it as clear as he possibly can. And don't we like things to be clear? I love clarity. And when when all of this is happening in the New Testament, they aren't real sure. John, are, are you Elijah? Are, are you the one, Jesus? Are you, there's all this unclarity. And Mark's trying to bring clarity to it. This past summer, some of you know, I caught my Whopper bass, my 10-pounder, finally, my last day of vacation. I should have a picture up here to show it to you, actually. But, I mean, I was so excited. And I had promised myself, if I ever got one that was 10 pounds, he was going on the wall. I was going to take him to his taxidermy and I was going to look at him whenever I wanted to, hanging in my garage with my other fish and my deer head. He was going to be there. So I get this 10-pounder. I put him on the scale, 
10, oh my goodness, my heart just starts, ha, 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 ha. And so I quickly, I get the boat and I drag it up and I'm throwing everything into the back of the pickup truck and I get into the pickup truck and I'm like, oh, da, 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 dad, you gotta get to the yellow pages, find a taxidermy, I'm on my way home right now. I got my big fish, you won't believe it. Dad, find me a taxidermy. I hang up and, oh man, I'm driving down the road, looking back, yeah, there's my fish still there. This is so cool. Well, I show up, my dad's amazed and I'm proud. And so we're taking pictures and doing all that stuff. And so we finally, we're on our way to the taxidermist. So this is in Alabama and this, this is not a reflection on the state of Alabama. This could have happened in any state in the union, but we had received directions from this guy. And so we were driving down the road and we were going to Leeds, Alabama, which is out in the boonies. But we, we weren't even actually going to Leeds. We had to go to a, what you might call a suburb of Leeds, Leeds, if you can have a suburb in the boonies of a town. So we were way out there. They did have traffic lights in that town, so it was at least a little forward moving. So we get out to this place, and so we're following the directions. Okay, yes, okay, we got that. Oh, there it is, yes, we got that. And then the next thing on the list, and I wanna make sure I get the quote. I was looking for a four-way stoplight. Now, those were the exact words, four-way stoplight. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of four-way stoplight. There's a traffic light, correct, has red, yellow, green, and then there's a four-way flashing light, you know, red on all the way around. Now, in my mind, I'm thinking four-way stoplight. That's what you do. Everyone has to stop. It's a four-way stoplight. So we're driving down the road, and there is no four-way stoplight. Now, we go through a number of traffic lights, um, but there's not the one that we're supposed to be looking for. It's not a landmark. So we end up in the boonies of the suburb of this boonie town. And so we turn back around and we try to find our way again. So finally we call the people and say, you know, sorry, but we just can't find our way to your shop. Oh, well, just follow the instructions. Well, that's what we're trying to do here. And so we get to this point right here. We get lost. And I'm now here. He goes, oh, just back up a little bit. And you can see the four-way stoplight. Just take a left right after that. And it's just a traffic light. It's just a traffic light. There's a traffic light there. There's... Okay, we'll take a left. So we end up at the place. Um, and I say, you know, can you just, I just want to know. Four-way stoplight. What's, what's a four-way stoplight? Because I saw lots of those out there. And that was a landmark for you. I won't even give you his explanation of it because it's mind-boggling. But the point is this, it wasn't clear at all. It's still not clear in my mind after talking to him. When, when all of this is unfolding and we're coming in the New Testament, people, they want clarity. They want to know what is going on. John, are you the one? Jesus, are you the one? What's going on? Just show us what's going on. And Mark says, in the beginning, or this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God, as it is written, one is going to come, my messenger, John appeared. John says, after me, one mightier than I, Jesus came. Undeniably the one. Jesus is the one who is coming. And so in verses 9 through 13, Jesus comes to fulfill that promise. Jesus came. John wants to make this clear. People may have been saying, are you the one? Are you the one? Who do people say that I am? Peter said, you're the Christ. 
And Mark says, I want you to know he's the Christ. And eight chapters, we're going to show you he's the Christ. We're going to go to the end of the book. He's the son of God. I want you to know. I want this to be clear. This is what Mark has been doing as he thinks about all these sermons he heard from Peter. And now as he thinks about Jesus. Think about Isaiah 25, 9. I loved it when we were going through this book and we came to this verse right here. My heart just leapt. It will be said on that day. Here's prophecy looking forward. Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And what Mark is saying, this is our God. We have waited for him. This is him. Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, immediately saw the heavens opening, the spirit descending. A voice came from heaven. You're my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. The spirit drives him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days and being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. And then where we're going to go next week. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God saying, the time is fulfilled. This is our God. This is our Lord. This is the one for whom we have waited. And Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. You see, all time, the eyes have been on Jesus. Now, Mark's going to keep all these events brief, but let's think about this entire passage. First of all, what we have here, it's announced in the Old Testament, as it is written. And then my messenger, John, comes. John also, in a prophetic voice, proclaims, after me comes one who is mightier than I. And so what happens next? We find that he's baptized by the one who announces him. And when you read other passages of this account, when John sees Jesus coming up, he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He clearly identifies him and he baptizes him. Not only that, we, we realize in Jewish tradition, they recognize three phenomena that were going to signify the inauguration of God's kingdom. The opening of the heavens, the descending of the Holy Spirit, a voice speaking from heaven. I mean, listen to what this particular testimony says. It says that the heavens will be opened and from the temple of glory, sanctification will come upon him. That's the Holy Spirit coming on him with a fatherly voice as from Abraham to Isaac and the glory of the most high shall burst forth upon him. And so clearly they were looking for heavens opening the, the Holy Spirit coming on him or sanctification coming on him, a fatherly voice from heaven. And that's going to be the one. Well, look what happens. Mark understands these traditions and he's going to make it very clear because what happens next? The heavens are opened. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit in verse 10. It says the heavens were just torn open. The spirit came down like a dove. And again, when we were going through Isaiah, I'll never forget Isaiah 64, 1, the cry of the prophet, oh, rend the heavens and come down. I mean, there they are in this world with all this stuff begging, rend, tear apart the heavens, come down. And that's what we see happening. The heavens are opening, they're torn open and he's anointed by the Holy Spirit. And then we see he's acknowledged by a voice from heaven where the Lord thunders. 
You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. In these three events, opening, spirit, voice, signify the inauguration of God's kingdom. And Mark wants that to be clear for us. He doesn't have to go into a lot of stories. He doesn't have to give a lot of detail. He's just going to put it right in your face. This is the one. In the inauguration of God's kingdom, with Jesus being the one, it enables him to not only speak and act for God, like a prophetic voice might, but as God. This is the glory of the Lord coming down. This is God coming down. This is what people have been waiting for. And so when Jesus comes onto the scene, he will not just speak for, but as God. And so what will he do? He will forgive sins. What will he do? He will heal people. Stretch out your hand. Pick up your bed and walk. He will take on the religious leaders. Let me tell you what the Sabbath is all about. He's going to come right at them because of who he is. It's here. He is here. It is happening. And with all of this fulfillment, Mark being so clear, look at all that's happening. He is here, the one for whom we have waited. What would you expect next? A party. Roll the throne out. Set him on the throne. Bring the crown. How about the robe, the scepter, the confetti begins to fall. Balloons all over the place. Well, that's not what happens. Instead, he's approved by overcoming temptation in verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And you can read the other gospel accounts. They'll give you more detail about this. But what Mark wants us to see is why has this one come? In the words of John in 1 John 3, 8, to destroy the works of the devil. In the same way as Adam and Eve were in the garden and Satan came and they fell, Jesus, his first mission is to encounter Satan and he wins. And that's just round one of many that come. Jesus' very first miracle is against Satan. And there's going to be Jesus and Satan throughout this gospel. Jesus is going to go to the cross, Satan thinking he's won this one. But no, he went to the cross willingly intentionally, purposely, so that he could die and defeat sin, Satan, and death. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. But Mark wants us to know he came to defeat Satan. At the core of why Jesus comes is to defeat the adversary who wars with the souls of humanity. And so Jesus comes. He brings a whole new way of life. And again, where we're going to go next week is with uh, the very last slide we have there, announced by Jesus himself, where he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. This gospel is going to be Jesus right in your face. And Mark sets it all forward. He goes through this whole time. Jesus is undeniably the one. So when we think about our first slide, all right, God, what now? Well, little by little, God has been unfolding his plan and all history looked forward to Jesus and all history now looks back at Jesus. All right, God, what now? And God's answer to that is always going to be Jesus. It may not make sense to us. Jesus doesn't make pain just go away. He doesn't make the darkness of this world just disappear. 
Paul says, we do have affliction. It's momentary. It's light. It's just not to be compared to the eternal weight of glory. And that's what Jesus brings for us. This eternal life and also an abundant life now where we can have peace that passes any understanding. And we all know the weight and the heaviness of life. All right, God, what now? Jesus. And so when we think about our lives for you, for your situation, for your deepest need, what Mark sets out here that Jesus is undeniably the one that is as true in Genesis 3.15 when he says the seed of the woman's going to crush the head of the seed of the serpent to when Jesus came and he tangled with Satan in the wilderness to the cross when he ultimately defeated right hand of God to our lives today as we await his soon return. Jesus is undeniably the one for us. So maybe when you come in today, your heart's been tossed around and you've been enticed and you've been led away. We've got to be brought back to the only one who can bring us hope. The only one who can bring us peace. The only one who can make sense of the world in which we live. It's Jesus. He's undeniably the one. Kenny's going to come. Let me lead us in prayer as he comes to lead us in a song. Lord, we are so thankful for the gospel message. We are so thankful for the good news of Jesus that we are not here to simply learn a bunch of truths that make our lives better. We're here to meet Jesus, the one who gave it all, and all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for this good news, and we pray that you would help each one of us open our hearts and receive this. And as we battle our own worlds, and we ask, all right, God, what now? Lord, would you help us to turn our eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and that we might know more deeply the riches of the gospel. Lord, help us in the weeks ahead to see Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.